millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. On the 4th of August, 1892, the bodies of Abby and Andrew Borden were discovered by their daughter, Lizzie Borden. Whoever had murdered the Bordens used an axe to kill them, and the police investigating eventually charged Lizzie because her testimony was contradictory and it had changed frequently. In fact, she was the only suspect in the case. There was not enough evidence to convict her, however, and the jury could not believe that a middle-aged, middle-class woman who was unmarried would have had the ability and the mindset to take an axe to their parents. Now, this is a crime that has inspired movies and television shows, literature, and it's still unsolved in many ways. Lizzie Borden remained in the same town that the murders took place in until her death. And today we're going to talk about a crime story that has gotten much less coverage than Lizzie Borden's, unless you went to Stanford University. This is the story of the death of Jane Stanford, one of the founders of Stanford University and the mother of the child who the university is named after, Leland Stanford Jr. Today we're talking with Professor Richard White. Richard is the Margaret Byrne Professor of American History Emeritus at Stanford, and he's a MacArthur Fellow, winner of the Francis Parkman Prize, former president of the Organization of American Historians. He's also a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize with books like The Middle Ground, Indians Empire and Republics in the Great Lakes Region, and one of my favorites, Railroaded, The Transcontinentals and the Making of Modern America. Richard is a towering figure in the field of Gilded Age and Progressive Era uh, uh, history, and he's a wonderful individual to talk to because he has got such great insights into the period. The book that we'll be discussing today, Who Killed Jane Stanford, is not a straightforward murder mystery. Obviously, policing will come under scrutiny in the book, but so does issues about race, and particularly Chinese Americans in California. Gender, and as I mentioned in the case of Lizzie Borden, how could an, a woman murder someone in a, in a time period when women were considered to, to be uh, incapable of such things? And we'll talk about other things that are swirling around California in the late 19th and early 20th century as well. I'm delighted to welcome to the show Professor Richard White. <laughs> Glad to be here, Mike. I'm looking forward to this. Okay, well, I have to uh, I have to break some news to you in the first instance that I read this on holiday, thinking it was going to be a murder mystery, you know, like a like a page turner, like. But it's 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 not. It's different, and I and I have to say it's um it, it challenged me in some ways on holiday, which is never a good thing. But but I'm I'm delighted that I did. So let's start with a little bit. The book is obviously called uh, Who Killed Jane Stanford. Um, let's start with some background because it's critically important to understanding the book. Um, it's a meandering tale that you tell. Who are the Stanfords, obviously husband, wife, and son, and how do they come to found the university that bears its name today? Yeah. Leland Stanford is one of the associates of the Central Pacific Railroad, which then goes on to um, become part of the Southern Pacific Railroad. And they're, they're usually known as the big four. Um, and Stanford was the dumb one, but they mixed their money together and they could never get rid of each other. By the 1890s, they've come to hate each other, but the only way you get out of being an associate is you die. So Stanford gets a quarter of the fortune. And what Stanford and the associates agreed to do is to take government subsidies, but they're in the form of a loan as well as land grants and give the money back. They will um, never give the money back, at least willingly. 
Stanford takes that fortune and probably would have passed on to his son, Leland Stanford Jr., who came late in his uh, marriage to Jane Stanford, his wife. But Leland Stanford Jr. dies of typhoid at 14 in Florence. And Stanford University is, and its real name is Leland Stanford Jr. University. It's a university that's a memorial to a dead child and dead children are all over the late 19th and early 20th century America. So Stanford University is the result of um, Leland Stanford Jr.'s death. He was their heir, their namesake. I once had an undergraduate ask me um, if Leland Stanford Jr. had been a girl, would there have been a university and question took me by surprise. The answer is no. This is about keeping the name alive. And what about Jane? Because she's the, well, not the protagonist, but she's obviously the central figure of this book. I mean, what's her story? Jane's um, marries Leland in New York, and then Leland vanishes into the gold rush and is gone for three or four years. Um, eventually, Jane comes out to join them. Um, Jane spends about 25 or 30 years doing very little except being rich until Leland is born, probably 20 years. Leland Jr. is born, she becomes, he becomes the focus of her life. And after he dies, she is just bereft. But she finds a new purpose in her life in the university. And when Leland Stanford dies in 1894, Jane really takes over the running of the university and will be the major force in the university along with the president, David Starr Jordan, until her own death in 1905. So she focuses her life on two things. First, her son, um, Leland Jr., and then the university. And after Leland Jr.'s death, she becomes, she probably was interested before, but she becomes an ardent spiritualist. And spiritualism in the 19th century can be boiled down to, and it believes that you can communicate with the dead. It believes that there is very little separation between the next world and this world, and that the dead pass over it all the time. And if you learn how to communicate, the dead will always be with you, and their souls will continue to grow and mature at, in the afterlife, just as they did when they were in this life. So death is a word that Jane Stanford rarely, if ever, uses, because spiritualists don't like the word death. It's just a transition, a change into another form of being. It seems a little mawkish, the idea that the university is this sort of shrine to a dead child. And I mean, does, I, I, I'm guessing that you must have taught, because you taught at Stanford for years. Uh, I'm guessing you must have taught this story and it must have perplexed you for quite a while, right? Well, the, the problem is, is it's very much part of the Stanford founding myth. If you go to Stanford University, you can take the tour. And the tour is, it's Stanford University is one of the richest universities in the world. And it's probably the hardest to get into in the world. So it, there's all these tours with parents and students coming in. And the first thing they tell them is this story, the, the rich parents, the dead child, the founding of the university and his memory for the children of California. And what it's about, and we can probably get into this later, what it's about is setting up that this is what rich people should do with their money and they should give it up to the university. So this story, as mawkish as it is, has worked incredibly well for Stanford. And to the best of my knowledge, it is still the story that is being told this very moment, this very day, someplace on the Stanford campus. I mean, talk about branding. It's uh, actually on that. I, I actually want to talk about a brand. Look, we'll start at the very beginning of your book. So at the outset of the book, you talk about an attempted poisoning. Jane Stanford drinks strychnine from a Poland spring bottle. And that's the brand that I'm talking about because you do an amazing job of bringing that to life, why the brand is important. Tell us what happened on that day, January 14, 1905. January 14, um, Jane Stanford starts out just to go to bed. Um, she goes to bed early. She's with her companion, Bertha Burner, and she lives in this vast Knob Hill mansion with Burner is there, though Burner usually hadn't been living with her, but she's living with her now and with her servants. And when she goes to bed, she has a strict routine. She goes to bed, she will um, prepare herself for bed, and then she will drink Poland Spring bottled water and whatever medicine she is going to take. And um, this night she takes the Poland Spring bottled water and she says it tastes bitter. It tastes, as a matter of fact, so bitter that she immediately spits it out and vomits and calls for her maid, Elizabeth Richmond. 
And Elizabeth Richmond comes in and Jane Stanford is in something of a panic. And she says, call Bertha, call Bertha. So Bertha is upstairs in this mansion in another room. Elizabeth R Richmond then summons Bertha Burner and she herself will go out to get some salt and warm water that Jane Stanford can drink. Um, and so she can vomit and bring up the rest of whatever she swallowed. Bertha Burner comes down and together when Elizabeth Richmond returns, they look at the water she drank and they flakes floating in it. Um, and when they look at it, they think something has happened to it. They take a slight taste of it and it tastes incredibly bitter. Um, they don't know what it is. They, you know, they, they think that the bottle's been tampered with, but they're not sure what it is. So Elizabeth Richmond suggests that they take the bottle, they cork it up, and they take it down to a drugstore at the bottom of Knob Hill, though it's, though it's late on, I think, a Saturday night. She will take it down. Um, and she doesn't take the trolley. She's afraid that it might drop. She walks it down, walks it to the um, to the drugstore. And at the drugstore, they look at it, and they aren't able to test it there, and they will send it out for testing. The tests will come back, but it takes an inordinately long time for the tests to actually reach them, almost a week. And when it comes in, they find that the bottle has been contaminated with strychnine, not pure strychnine. Somebody has dumped a copious amount of rat poison into the Poland Spring bottled water. And the Poland Spring bottled water is known for its purity. They advertise it. This bottle is tested all the time. There's a cork in it. Do not break the seal of this cork because this bottle is pure water. Somebody has broken the seal, put in rat poisoning. Somebody has tried to kill Jane Stanford. I just think about the research that you were doing and this idea about Poland, Poland Spring coming up and the, you know, we're kind of getting into the shoes of the people of the time and understanding not just the events that are unfolding, but also how the wider culture about purity and all this and is, is going on. I mean, and that's what great history books, just like great novels do. They manage to bring the reader in into a foreign place and, and introduce them to the time. And what I loved about the book is you introduce us to people that would otherwise be strangers as well. And there's a a lot of them. There's a lot of characters in the book. And you just mentioned a few of them, Richmond and Burner and obviously Jane Stanford, but they're all orbiting or orbiting around Jane Stanford. And one of them seems to have the heaviest gravity. And that's Bertha Burner, who you mentioned. Who is she? And can we trust her in this story? You know, one of the things I found about this story, we can trust no one <laughs> in this story. <laughs> but Bertha Burner writes a memoir of Jane Stanford, a biography really. She writes it 30 years after her death. And it becomes one of my major sources, but it's not a source I can trust. She is telling a story about Jane Stanford's life that has a point to it. And the point to it is, is that Jane Stanford did not die of poisoning. And she also tries to create Stanford as what becomes the motto of um, Stanford University because David Starr Jordan will write another book entitled The Good Woman. But the first giveaway in the Bertha Burner book is Burner can't quite do it. She'll try to make her the good woman, but she makes it very clear this was a very, very difficult woman. This was an immensely wealthy woman who used her wealth to get her way. And she used it against Bertha Burner. But Bertha Burner will also um, not so much lie as leave out things. Um, you would think from reading Bertha Burner's memoir, she comes to work for Jane Stanford when she's about 18 years old because she attended Leland Stanford Jr.'s um, funeral. And it's an unlikely story. It's one of the first things that catches me, that supposedly the church is so crowded that they wanted to go in because there's a famous preacher who's going to be there. They came to hear that. It was really a kind of entertainment. Um, but there's no room in the church. They're about to go away when one of the priests in the Episcopal Church beckons them over and says, there's actually seats just behind Mrs. Stanford. And she saw you outside the church and asked me to bring you in. You know, this, this is a woman who in other places said she cried herself so much that she could barely see. But anyway, she tells this story and she comes in and she then later will write Mrs. Stanford saying that if you need someone to help you with your um, secretarial tasks, to write especially thank you notes for people who have sent you um, cards about the funeral, I'd be more than willing to do it. And she gets the job and supposedly she works for it for 20 years, but she doesn't. She, um, they have fights, they split up. Jane Stanford is incredibly controlling. She tries to control um, Bertha Burner's 
sexual life. She tries to control who she sees. She tries to control her relationship with her own family. She tries to control everything about her. And you can almost feel when you go back and read between the lines, the tension mounting between them. It's amazing the uh, that tension because I think you're, you 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 paint a picture of uh, the men in Berner's life and the tension there between uh, other others uh, help in the house as well. Uh, um, so we'll get to all that because there's there's quite a few other people to introduce here. I also have an entirely new perspective on David Starr Jordan. I mean he's the president of Stanford. Uh, in one of the first things that I ever wrote about was about anti-imperialism, and I thought him a fairly resolute an intellectually convicted character. Um, even if I found his ideas about race and immigration, he was a eugenicist, I mean, completely abhorrent, but um, you know, he was, he was an interesting and intelligent character. But when I read about Jordan in your book, I had a completely different impression. So who is David Starr Jordan? David Starr Jordan was both of those people. He was an early environmentalist. He's one of the um, early members of the Sierra Club. Um, he is a pacifist. Um, and he is devoted to the teaching of biology and evolution um, in the early 19th century. But he's also a eugenicist. He's also um, an anti-immigration activist. Um, he's a thoroughgoing racist. He's all of those things. But that's not an unusual package in the early 20th century. I mean, that's what's so interesting about it, is we expect that good and evil is going to be segregated the way we want it segregated in the early 21st century, but that's not the package you get back then. They can do things that um, we agree with, and they can do a lot of things that appall us. David Starr Jordan would do them, but mostly what I discovered about David Starr Jordan is he was incredibly ambitious. He really wanted to be um, admired. He really wanted to be able to associate with people like Theodore Roosevelt and the rich and the powerful, Stanford University gave him that opportunity, but the price he paid was Jane Stanford could control him because she controlled the money for the university. And there's a couple of really standout affairs, it's three, I think, but I, I want to talk about two of them in particular that really tarnish Jordan's, uh, I guess, reputation, but also the possibly tarnished the reputation of Stanford University. There's the Ross affair and the Gilbert affair. And if you could just take those in turn and tell me what they are and, and why they're so important. Yeah. The, the Edward Ross affair is probably the most famous academic scandal in um, the early 20th century. And Ross was, and he becomes probably the most famous American sociologist, one of the most famous American intellectuals through the early 20th century into the 1930s. Um, he's about six foot six tall. He's um, handsome, he's flamboyant, he's a wonderful lecturer, and he is probably by his late 20s on his way to becoming the most famous faculty member at Stanford. He loves California. He's an outdoorsman, he loves to fish, he loves to hike, he falls in love with the state. Um, but he also has very strong opinions. He, like Jordan, is a eugenicist. He, like Jordan, is an anti-immigration anti activist, and he's particularly convinced that Asian immigration is going to be the ruin of the United States. He also hates plutocracy. He thinks that, um, as he says, um, every railroad deal is a railroad steal. He mentions that he thinks Leland Stanford um, used um, illicit means to gain his fortune, which he certainly did. And he says these things, and these things get back to Jane Stanford. And there's two things that get back to them. In the 1896 election, even though he's a Republican, he backs Bryan because of the gold standard, or because of the silver standard. He's against the gold standard. Jane Stanford is adamant about the gold standard. Um, and she gets very angry over that. And then later on, he will be giving talks in San Francisco um, against Japanese immigration. And Jane Stanford has a great admiration for the Japanese and also a great sense of loyalty to her Chinese servants who protected her mansion during the um, Sandlot riots early on in the 1870s. So she decides that, that um, Jordan has to, it's not Jordan, but Ross has to go. 
Jordan tries to finesse it. He doesn't want to lose Ross. He likes Ross. He shares many of Ross's opinions, but he realizes that he has to appease James Stanford, and he tries. He tries to get Ross to apologize. Ross will apologize. Ross will say all kinds of things. But at the same time, Jordan has written these letters that he never should have wrote to Ross saying, look, I know she's a She's an old woman of reactionary opinions, um, but we have to appease her. She wants you gone. You have to do something about this or she will let you go. And there's no way I can save you without hurting the university. In the end, Jordan fails. Um, and Ross, who can be um, pretty wily himself, when he's dismissed, he calls in the San Francisco papers and he says, um, I was dismissed, but it had nothing to do with David Starr Jordan. It was Jane Stanford who let me go. Um, and I was dismissed because of my academic opinions. There's no free speech at Stanford University. Puts Jordan in an impossible place. He can't offend George, Jane Stanford. He tries to take um, responsibility for the dismissal himself by saying Ross was a terrible person, but Ross can essentially wave the letters and say, David, I have what you wrote to me. And Jordan just tangles himself up. It erupts into a giant academic scandal. The papers get a hold of it. Stanford becomes this place where no faculty member can really um, broach their real opinions. Um, and that Jordan is seen as defending a reactionary fortune which feel, with the woman who acts like she owns the university and can hire and fire faculty like they're her servants. And it will hurt Stanford's reputation for decades after that. It is basically establishes Stanford as this place where no self-respecting academic would ever go. There's lessons here for university presidents, isn't there? I mean, I know that my university president has listened to the podcast and I'm thinking, well, there's some real lessons here about you know what to do and what not to do. There's also the Gilbert affair as well, uh, which, is, which is as important for Stanford. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, the Gilbert affair is a complicated one. It goes to the other side of academic life, which we all know too. Gilbert is um, very loyal to Jordan. He'd been very loyal to Jordan during the Ross affair. And, um, he also manages to have a middle-aged affair in the library with an ex-student who he gets employed in the library. And um, he is not at all careful about how he conducts themselves. They meet in the stacks and um, it's noticed they're meeting in the stacks. One of the librarians is his sister-in-law and his sister-in-law goes to another librarian and says, look, you have to do something. You have to fire this woman. Otherwise, it's going to ruin my sister's marriage. You have to save us and do this. So this librarian then reports what's going on higher up, but it gets to Jordan, and Jordan will protect Gilbert. Gilbert finds his, pay, his face plastered over the front pages of the San Francisco papers, but Jordan essentially says, no, we're going to save um, Gilbert and we will do this by going after the librarians. And what he'll do is essentially um, accuse the librarian, who is the one who reported the affair, of being that I never used the word in the early 19th century, or late early 20th century, as, as being gay. Um, pretty much they say he's a sexual deviant, he's a sexual pervert, um, and that what we're gonna do, unless he renounces this, is we're gonna have him diagnosed as that, and we're gonna lock him up in a sanitarium, and he's not gonna get out. So the answer is you're gonna quit your job, you're gonna say you were lying, we're gonna have the sister-in-law come in and say, if you really wanna save this marriage, you better back, this, back us up on this, and they do all of these things. Gilbert is saved, the librarian is fired, um, but it leaves a bad taste in a lot of people in the university who knew exactly what was going on. And what it shows, along with the Ross affair, is how ruthless um, Jordan can be in protecting those who will support him and also in getting those who cross him. And these two aren't the only scandals. There's more too, but I think they give you they give a real flavor of what's going on in Stanford in this time. Um, and before we get into some of the themes that the book explores too, I, I wanted to just introduce one more character, and that's George Carruthers, because he's a trustee of the university, and he's also a key figure in the mystery of who kills Jane as well. So, do you mind? I know there's a lot of characters, but do you mind doing one more? 
Yeah, no. And Crothers is in many ways a critical character. I would never have figured any of this out without Crothers. And, and Crothers' story, like every story in this book, is pretty odd. Um, Crothers is one of the early undergraduates of Stanford University. And he looks just like Leland Jr. And in a story that's both creepy and kind of sweet, Jane Stanford starts stalking him. She will get in her carriage and follow him around the Stanford campus because he reminds her so much of her son. When he graduates, he becomes a lawyer and through a minor thing about a fraternity house and negotiating a lease, he comes and meets Jane Stanford again and she hires him not as a university lawyer, but as a personal lawyer. And she will become involved. She asks him to take a look at some of the founding documents in the university. And what Crothers finds out is it's an ungodly mess. Virtually all the founding documents are illegal. They violate the trust laws in the state of California. They violate the Stanford Constitution. And to make things worse, both Jane Stanford and Leland Stanford had then changed them at will, so they're utterly contradictory. Any of these things taken to court, the Stanford University will not be a legal entity. Legally, Stanford University doesn't exist. So Crothers realizes what he has to do is change the California Constitution. So he changes the California Constitution by getting an amendment, lobbying it through, but he's never satisfied that he's done enough because Jane Stanford stays active in this. So for 10 years, George Crothers will try to clean up Jane Stanford's mess. Whenever he cleans up one, he makes another one. He's never satisfied that the wills he writes are gonna stand in court, and he's never satisfied she's not gonna change the will on a drop of a dime. He's never satisfied that the trusts which, which give the Stanford fortune to um, Stanford University, particularly once Jane dies, are gonna be able to be upheld against suits by the relatives. He realizes in the very end that if anything will drive the wills and trusts to court, all of Stanford University can collapse like a house of sand. So what he's gonna be most worried about is that Jane Stanford is gonna do something um, that will bring all of this into court the thing that will bring it into court that he's most afraid of is she will commit suicide or be murdered once that happens. And Jane Stanford has left him with a letter before she departs, we haven't come to it yet, for Hawaii, leaves a letter. Crothers never reveals that letter during the murder investigation. Yeah, there's so much to come to. That's why we're introducing these people. And I think, I love the way this is all unfolding already because it is, I'm trying to, help it unfold the way the book does as well. And so there's still a little bit more scene setting to do because we've kind of covered the, uh, the elites of the story, you know, the rich and wealthy and the powerful within Stanford University. But the Chinese American communities in San Francisco also have a part to play mainly in the homes of the rich and wealthy and but also of course in the city's history. So can you tell us a little bit about the role that they play in your story as well? Yeah, it's a very complicated role. It's a role that I've, it's one thing I've never figured out completely. Um, and what it is, is that his, Jane Stanford's oldest servant, the oldest in terms of, of um, having stayed employed by her, is a man named Al Wing. And Al Wing starts out incredibly loyal to the Stanfords, very fond of Leland Jr. She will actually nurse Jane Stanford's brother who's dying of cirrhosis of the liver through his um, last months um, taking care of him in the Knob Hill mansion. And he promises to give Ah Wing an inheritance, but he doesn't. He gives the inheritance to Jane. Ah Wing is um, furious. Ah Wing wants to go back to China, see his own family. The immigration of many Chinese here was always supposed to be temporary. They'd earn money and the gold mountain and then go back to China. Um, and Jane Stanford tells him, well, you know, I'm not gonna give you the fortune, I'll give you a thousand dollars, the inheritance, I'll give you a thousand dollars and I'll promise to leave something in my will. If in fact you promise to stay with me um, for, until I die. And Ah Wing initially says no, he initially goes back to China and nearly doesn't come back in, but in the end he needs the money, he comes back there and that's the deal he has with, with Jane Stanford. He will get an inheritance from Jane Stanford if he stays till she dies. But at the same time, he's only in America now with his family back in China because she has refused to give him the money that he thought was coming to him on the death of her brother. Um, he himself is tied through a series of Chinese 
brotherhoods and organizations to, to Chinatown itself, both in San Francisco and in, in Oakland. And that becomes an incredibly tangled place um, because, because what you have is the seven companies are a sort of shadow government and they take care of the Chinese, including Ah Wing in their tangles with American law and American society. But at the same time, they harbor criminal organizations. And these criminal organizations corrupt the police department because the criminal organizations control prostitution and gambling in San Francisco. So they become incredibly tangled up with the political machines and the police departments. And any investigation of the Chinese is gonna go through the police, it's gonna involve the, um, the, the um, seven companies, but the, the problem with the seven companies is they have their own ends to gain. And those ends to gain might be surrendering people if it's gonna save the seven companies. And once it becomes that Ah Wing is a suspect, Ah Wing's loyalty becomes something that is questionable. There are people who figure they can get favors by turning in Ah Wing and solving problems, criminal problems in Chinatown. And I find this mysterious letter, which is very hard to decipher, but the way I interpret it is, is somebody was trying to betray Ah Wing, accuse him of the murder in order to get a favor, in this case, to get his wife back from, from being kidnapped for prostitution in Chinatown. So this is incredible, tangled story where Ah Wing is that close, that close to becoming the person who can take care of all this. They'll simply pin it on Wing, Ah Wing. And if this sounds like detective stories in early 19th, early 20th century San Francisco, it is basically it can be the plot that's taken right out of DeShiel Hammett. But many of those things come from actual life. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That letter that you talk about involving Toy Wang, the conspiracy, uh, is it runs so deep. And I mean, we are only skimming the surface here. So I would this at this point, I really want to urge everyone listening to go out and get this book because you will not get the depths just from this conversation. That's how deep it runs. Um, and we're only establishing motive here now, right? I mean, we've got Berner's motive. We've got uh, Jordan's motive, obviously, ambition and discontent with Jane Stanford and Ah Wing's motive with inheritance. And there's other players, too. But I wanted to I wanted to break away from the motive for a second and just talk a little bit. You mentioned spiritualism. Uh, Jane Stanford is a devout Christian as well. She's also a, a, an admirer of Catholicism, um, although she's not a convert. And she also attends these seances and she believes that she can commune with her dead son. Um, 
is this common at the time? Is this, you know, to have, it's like a pan-Christian uh, life mixed in with the occult? Yeah, it, it's very common. I mean, Jane Stanford turns into her own personal cult. I mean, the reason she doesn't become a Catholic because Catholics have, are full of angels and messages and Jane Stanford loves that stuff. She loves the ritual. But at the same time, she wants them to acknowledge that she herself is getting spiritual messages. They want to acknowledge her version of eternal life and they can never quite come there. The basic problem is when you're head of the church of Jane, you can't just become another Catholic. So she comes almost to the point of baptism and backs away. And the church really, really wants her because what she's promising to do, if she becomes a Catholic, she will turn Stanford University over to the Jesuits. It will become essentially a branch of Santa Clara University. And one of Crother's main worries is that the Bishop, Archbishop of San Francisco is gonna to get to Jane and that Jane agrees to it that she will not have lunch alone with the Archbishop of San Francisco without Crothers being there to make sure she doesn't do something rash. But it, until the very end, he's worried and other people are worried too. David Starr Jordan's worried that she's gonna turn the whole thing over to the Catholic church. But the mixture of spiritualism and Christianity, that's everywhere. I mean, the virtue of all of this stuff is if you go to the Stanford Church today, only half of which survives, most of it was came down in the earthquake, but the bottom half of the church is pretty original. And you will find spiritualism all over. You will also find that for a Protestant church, it's the most Catholic place I've ever seen in my life. Most of the stuff, the altars all come from Italy. It's full of Catholic saints. It's full of stained glass windows. I mean, it does not look Protestant. Um, but it's also full of spiritual stuff. And then what Jane Stanford did is what other spirituals do, spiritualists do. There's so much Christian iconography, which can double as spiritualist iconography, that only the, um, those who know know what they're seeing. You go to the front of the church, one of the first things you'll notice if you're a spiritualist, all the angels are women. There are no male angels. So that's a sure sign of spiritualism. You'll find all kinds of other spiritualist symbols scattered through the church along with Masonic symbols. If you're not looking for them, it doesn't look that way. But the church is, the idea is you, you, um, you put it in, you hide it in pure sight. It's the same way. One of the reasons she makes it ecumenical is if you have um, rabbis there, Episcopal priests there, Methodists there, Catholic priests there, um, all these people dedicating the church. Who's going to notice the spiritualist? Um, so that's what she does. And she merges it all the time. She herself is a devout Christian. She's also a spiritualist. She does not see a contradiction between us. I mean, we know that no one comes back from the dead to murder Jane Stanford, but... Spiritualist um, might have happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but we do know, I guess, that there is... This plays a role in, in her death, this sort of the, the mystery about her death. And I suppose we should really get to that, although your book doesn't actually deal with the death until probably it's like a, you know, like as a novel would, the climax is the, the death of Jane Stanford. And I'm not going to say murder because I, I'd like to hear your story and just tell us, you know, how, how does she die? Um, she's going to die in Hawaii. And, and, I'll, and I'll insert here, the reason I spent so much time settling this up is that the thing I had to establish is what was at stake in her death. And that essentially that's the survival of Stanford University, um, if things go wrong. And the second thing was how many people there were who actually wanted to kill her. I mean, that, that was one of the things. But her death well, you start not... you start the book as well by saying Jane Stanford herself said, "No one wants to kill me. I couldn't think of anyone <laughs> who wants to kill me." And in fact, there's loads that want to kill her. Yeah, that's right. That shows that this is this woman's perception was not all it might be. Um, but she goes to Hawaii and she's going, as she says in her letters to Crothers, because she's fleeing a murderer in San Francisco. Somebody tried to poison. And she's been advised um, that she should probably go leave San Francisco for a while till they get to the bottom of this. So she leaves and she leaves with Bertha Burner. Bertha Burner does not want to go alone. She wants Albert Preverly, the butler, who had also been her um, lover, to go with them. But Stanford says, no man, no man is coming with us. So he goes with Burner and a new maid. And they go to San Francisco and they check into the Moana Hotel. And for about a week or so, Jane Stanford relaxes, um, seems happy. She's going on to Japan. She's thinking this whole thing is behind her. By the time they come back from Japan, it'll all be settled. Burner, on the other hand, does not want to go to Japan. 
Berner's mother is deathly ill, and the only reason that she is with Jane Stanford is Jane Stanford made her come. Essentially, the choice Berner faced was, if you don't come, you lose your job. And furthermore, she knows that she has um, an inheritance in Stanford's will, and she knows Stanford can change her will. So Berner spends much of the voyage over trying to talk Jane Stanford into, okay, we'll go to Hawaii, but then let's turn around and come back home. After a week, it's clear they're not going back home. They're going on to Japan. And after a week, there's a um, Jane Stanford goes out on a tourist visit. She has a nice day. She has a picnic lunch. She comes back. She's tired. She ate enough at lunch that she really doesn't want dinner. They just have some soup. And she retires early. And before she goes to bed, she tells Bernard, could you please prepare me some bicarbonate of soda and these pills for digestion, which have a tiny little bit of strychnine in them. Strychnine is used in medicine at the time. It's a tiny little medicinal dose. Um, and, and Bertha Bernard will do that. She doesn't administer it. She simply measures out the bicarbonate um, and leaves the pill there. And um, Stanford asks her, why don't you take some bicarbonate too? Because you ate with me also. Um, and she says, no, no, I don't need bicarbonate. I'll, you know, I'll probably take the strychnine pill, but not until I go to bed. And she leaves her in the room. Jane Stanford, it appears, does not take this when she goes to bed, but she wakes after a couple of hours and takes the bicarbonate of soda. And after that, she starts to scream for help. Um, she says she has been poisoned. The man next door hears it, runs off to get a doctor. Burner comes. She also goes to get a doctor. The maid comes. The doctor comes down and looks at her and begins to think that um, at first he thinks it's just um, some kind of panic attack. Then it begins to show the symptoms of strychnine. Jane Stanford is saying, I've been poisoned. I've been poisoned. They tried to poison me in San Francisco, and now they're poisoning me here. He calls for another doctor who will bring a stomach pump, and that doctor will eventually come with a stomach pump, but by then it's too late. Jane Stanford dies relatively quickly, um, and she exhibits all the classical um, signs of strychnine poisoning. They also taste the bicarbonate of soda, and there's a taste of bitterness, which is also, like in the rat poison, characteristic of strychnine. The doctors conclude that they need an autopsy. They think what they have is a woman who has died of strychnine poisoning, and um, Berner and the maid are virtually hysterical and the body will be taken away um, to be autopsied the next day, not before they make a death mask of it, which actually became a prop in the class I used to teach on this because the first thing we do, we go to the, the library and they bring from the archives um, the death mask of Jane Stanford. And when the archivist buried it, it was as if Jane Stanford ghost had just walked into the room. It is a mask of her face um, within 24 hours of her death. You uncovered that Berner had a relationship with a pharmacist or someone who had access to a pharmacy. And that seems to be a big missing link in all of this. Yeah, one of the things I discovered, I mean, it's the part which is really the kind of detective work I do in the story. Um, I noticed already that Berner, in telling the story of going to San Francisco, leaves out a critical thing. She says they went to San Jose and then they came up to San Francisco and she gives it, gets the details wrong. But she doesn't mention that they stopped in Palo Alto. And she doesn't mention that they went to a pharmacy. And that doesn't mention that, in fact, they brought new bicarbonate of soda. So the new bicarbonate of soda, the, the um, Honolulu police immediately latch onto that. They try to trace the bicarbonate of soda, and Berner lies about it. She said, oh, it's old soda. I don't know where it came from. You know, we, there was always soda lying around. But it turns out it's not old soda. Um, it's in a bottle that they got when they went on his trip to Australia, but the soda had been refilled in the stop in Palo Alto. So the first question I had is, why is she covering up buying soda in Palo Alto? Then there's going to be this newspaper um, story, which is a tiny little thing. They're trying to trace down the bicarbonate of soda, and it turns out that there is a, a, a pharmacist named Schwab, if I recall correctly, um, who had been owned his own pharmacy in Mountain View and things had gone south for him. He'd been married, he got divorced, he was on hard times, he came into Palo Alto, he's selling insurance, he's working as a clerk in the, the pharmacy, he's a German immigrant, as is Bertha Berner. They strike up a friendship, they talk to each other in German. 
Um, and it appears from the gossip that he was infatuated with her and perhaps was also, like Beverly, her lover. But the police, when they find Schwab, who is embezzled from one of these pharmacies, clearly he is a man in some desperate straits, um, go up and interview him in, um, in, find out about him in San Francisco. They go to interview people who knew him. There's a story from somebody who's been spreading the press, another, an Irish immigrant saying, well, Schwab, and I don't know all the details of the story, but he apparently knew Schwab's ex-wife and there's stories where the Schwab had been involved with Berner and Schwab had been in a pharmacy. And the detectives think, uh-oh, um, a pharmacist, pure strychnine, where did she get, where did the murderer get the pure strychnine? And so they go up and they um, interview this guy and he tells them all about Schwab. They give addresses for Schwab. That's the end of Schwab. As far as I can tell, the police never follow up on Schwab. They never interview him. They never interview his wife. Um, one address is clearly false in Oakland, but the other address is the address of his wife in a boarding house. Um, and so my, my guess is, and it's only a guess, is um, they didn't go after Schwab because they didn't want to find Schwab, at least to bring him to trial. But then the other part of it is, is Schwab utterly disappears. This is a guy I've been able to trace year by year, all the places he's been in San Francisco for the previous five or six years. After this mentioned in the newspaper, he is gone. The other thing I should mention is these police detectives also have um, assets in the criminal world in San Francisco. They essentially are being paid off by the gangs that run San Francisco. They, um, if they need a favor, they can get a favor. So my guess is Schwab is either warned to disappear or they don't have to look for Schwab because they know he's already gone and that nobody's gonna find him. And if this sounds like it's um, over the top, San Francisco is a place where um, district attorneys get shot in the class, in the um, courtroom. This is a place where chief of police vanish out of boats in the middle of San Francisco Bay. This is a place where people disappear. Yeah, and your book does cover all the police uh, matters as well, that, especially the underworld. And um, I got I have one one final question about the who done it. Um, you know, is it is it burner? And and I, I think I know, I know the answer to this because you cover it in the book. But if it is burner, how sure of you that it's not someone else? The problem I face is there were so many people um, who had a motive to do it. But, you know, as my brother pointed out, um, you know, you have to have motive, but you have to have the means too. which in Richard, case you, should, you should point out your brother is a writer as well, right? He's yeah, a- my, my, brother, my brother is a crime writer. So when my brother told me, it's one of the things about plotting the book, he said, both, you know, you save it till the end, you know, spill everything at the beginning. So the other thing he said, when you, when you investigate a crime is what detectives do. What they have to do is establish, first you have an array of people with motive. I have a lot of people with motive who dislike James Stanford. Then they have to have the means. Um, the means are that you have to have access to strychnine. Rat poison is easy to get. Anybody can get rat poison. But pure strychnine, that there's books you have to sign for. You have to be a pharmacist or have, or have access to a, a laboratory. You have to have the ability to get it. So that narrows the, the, um, the number of suspects quite a bit. And the final thing is you have to be have opportunity. Jane Stanford got poisoned in two quite particular private places, both of them her bedroom. One a bedroom in her mansion. So one of the things is who are the people present at the poisoning? And the other one, then in Hawaii, in her hotel. Now it's true that the poisoner might have had accomplices, but what looks particularly bad for Bertha Burner is that the only person present at both poisonings is Bertha Burner. And Bertha Burner has a motive. Bertha Burner is angry about Jane Stanford insisting that she neglect her own dying mother to take care of Jane Stanford. She's had years of Jane Stanford intervening in her um, personal affairs and her sexual life. And she has Jane Stanford now hauling her off to Japan, though she's begged her not to. And she has Jane Stanford, she knows full well, will write her out of her will if she crosses it. So she clearly has a motive. 
Does she have the means? Schwab, the pharmacist, gives her the means. Um, so at that point, it becomes relatively clear to me that Bertha Burner is the prime suspect. But I have another problem. Everybody else is insisting it's not Bertha Burner. It can't be Bertha Burner. So I think, what's up with that? Um, well, there's two things up with that. Bertha Burner knows a lot. If you are going to put Bertha Burner on the stand, she knows all about Stanford University. She knows all about Jane Stanford. She knows all about her relations with Jordan. She knows all about the wills. That's dangerous. But the part that purely convinced me is when David Starr Jordan comes to Hawaii for the cover-up, the first point person he turns to is Bertha Burner. And essentially the deal that is offered is Murder? What murder? If there's no murder, there can't be a murderer, but I need your help. And Bertha Burner gives him her help. And to do that, as we'll probably talk about, she will repudiate virtually all her testimony to the coroner's jury. Well, that, that's it. There's you, uh, the cover up. That is incredible. Uh, you know, and, and that you spend this sort of the falling action of the book is this this cover up to save Stanford University. Um, and this is maybe not so much a question about the cover up, but it's about, you know, you being a Stanford professor. You worked there for decades. How has working there both facilitated this research, but also has it constrained the publication of the book? I mean, I imagine that you get to go to the archives whenever you want to, but writing about your place of employment and the unsavory past must raise some eyebrows at Stanford. Well, you're a university professor. <laughs> we all know how we secretly feel about the university that employ us. As I tell my, my students, the university is your employer. The university is not your friend. So this Richard, is I'm, I'm still employed by the university, so I said, so <laughs> yeah, you're retired. I'm, I'm emeritus, so I, 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 will, I will say that. But on the other hand, I will say that while I had no particular loyalty to Stanford University, as my, um, my wife, who, who herself recently died, but as my wife told me that she was going to, if she outlived me, that um, she was going to put in my gravestone, he bit the hand that fed him. And that's that is certainly that is certainly part of it. But the other part is the Stanford University never interfered in the research. Stanford University did what I expected it to do. By and large, the official university has ignored the book as much as possible. It will go away. And the book is aimed not just at the scandal around the founding of the university, because I'm sure we'll talk about, about how universities operate and how universities function down to the present day. But the one thing I can clear Stanford University of is it never made any attempt to interfere with my research for the book, um, nor has it paid any particular attention, though people around the university have, and there's been things in newsletters and Stanford Magazine, but the official university response has been utter silence, and I will be shocked if that ever changes. Well, that then begs the question, how does Stanford University survive? Because obviously you mentioned at the outset, this is a university, world-renowned, you know, difficult to get into. It wasn't the case 100 years ago. And, and so how does it make that change? Yeah, what, what happens is with Jane Stanford gone, David Starr Jordan's idea was that he's going to turn it into a reputable major university. The money's now secure. Um, when the earthquake comes, it actually destroys all the personal monuments to Stanford. The arch collapses, the church is destroyed. And then gradually this association, though they will continue to rever the founders and have Founders Day, they want to make it a more normal university, but it's hard to do. The scandals stick with them. The stories about spiritualism stick with them. And more than this is I am not the first person to suspect that David Starr Jordan um, covered up the murder. And indeed, there are people who suspected that David Starr Jordan was the murderer. Stanford has not only all its heritage of scandals before this, but now it has the stories that go around the death of James Stanford. And the person who intervenes in this eventually, when he is gonna be chair of the board of trustees is Herbert Hoover who um, kicks Jordan upstairs. Jordan doesn't even know it, that pretty much he announces at a commencement. And I'd like to congratulate President David Jarrett Jordan, who is now no longer president, but is chancellor of this university, which means there's absolutely no power at all. And he goes on and makes a new, a new president. So they get rid of Jordan, but all that leaves Stanford as is a 
private school with a sort of mixed um, reputation, and it'll remain that through the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. It is going to be a private college in which um, the wealthy will go, but it's also not just the wealthy, it will still have um, children from California, but it's a regional private college. All that changes in World War II. It's gonna be, um, Terman, it's going to be um, defense money coming in, it's going to be research money, it's government funding to, creates modern Stanford. So there's really two Stanfords, there's pre-World War II Stanford, post-World War II Stanford. Um, and they things will carry over, the things are going to be very much the same, but it becomes a major university that it never was in the early days. Jordan never succeeds in turning it into the research university he wanted it to be. Okay, and here's a question for the historians that are out there, because if you're thinking about doing work like this, A, I want to know how long it takes, but B, I want to know how in the world do you do the research? Because the records that you turn to, I mean, there's tax records, censuses, obviously correspondence, foreign language detective work in the underbelly of San Francisco. I mean, do you have some advice for historians and, auth and authors as well who want to do this kind of comprehensive re research other than take good notes? Uh, <laughs> certainly take good notes, but um, <clears throat> you have the skills already. I mean, one of the things that I think most non-historians don't realize is that we bring to any problem a set of skills which are really, you know, like a Swiss army knife. We have a lot of tools that we can use. And one of the first things is our skepticism. Um, we are, we're skeptical of everything. There is no story that we don't get into and try to establish the truth for ourselves. And one of the things you do if you're gonna be um, doing, looking at a murder or looking at a crime is there's a lot of people who have reason to lie. Um, as one point, as I say in the book, um, if people didn't lie, detectives and historians would have no work, at least no interesting work. I mean, we're very good at taking out what is likely to be true and what is unlikely to be true. We have no interest in establishing absolute truths. We're just interested in truer. And murder mysteries are about truer. And the other thing is we will look at anything where the clues lead. That when one of the things that I believe as a historian, I think most historians do, is that it's really impossible to destroy all the records. People will destroy things. There were more records destroyed in this case than anything I'd ever seen before in my research. But you can't destroy everything. If you destroyed the letter that came to you, you didn't necessarily wrote, destroy the letter that went to somebody else that prompted this letter. Um, if in fact somebody's name is mentioned, you can go to them and find out other kinds of records. You can um, begin to <clears throat> destroy evidence, but all evidence leaves a sort of shadow and stories about it. As a matter of fact, you can leave all kinds of stuff out like poor Bertha Burner did, but the more Bertha Burner leaves out, the more suspicious I become <laughs> and the more I can find. So we have the ability to go into places where people think everything has disappeared and find, no, it hasn't disappeared. And even if the documents disappeared, we can read the shadows. The shadows are always gonna be there. So that's another skill that we have. And the third thing we have is that, you know, what we are is storytellers. And if you're gonna go into a murder, a murder is essentially going to be a story. There is a living person who becomes dead. And the question is, how did the living person become dead and why? The how and the why questions are the kinds of questions we as historians do all the time. And what we finally have is what the only thing that sets us really apart from a lot of other people is patience. Um, and if you're the kind of historian I am, you just love the archives. <laughs> you love reading other people's mail. You love just discovering stuff. You love following the trail. And those are the things, if you have the patience, all kinds of things will begin to come together. And that's why I originally started the course was to instill that into students, to get them a sense of how historians work and where things come from. And I realized that a murder was probably the way to get them going. And the mistake I made is I only had 10 weeks and it took a lot longer than 10 weeks to do it.
Well, it definitely got me going. And now I'm thinking there needs to be a research me research methods class called Shadows, Stories, and Patience as, you know, the way to do work. Uh, this, this, this is a wonderful book in so many ways. And I am uh, obviously a big fan of yours and all the work that you've done prior to this. But this was a really exciting, it, I wouldn't say it's a page turner. It's not. It's deep. It's dense. It's exactly what you expect from Richard White. A, it stays a little bit of a page turner. <laughs> no, yeah. What, what I mean is, is, is you you want to consume this. You want to, you know, you, you read a murder mystery sometimes, and you're just flipping to see what happens next. You you find yourself immersed in this book, and it yeah, is. You're, yeah, you're you're totally right. One of the things is they so part of this book is true crime, and the true crime people realize right away. Wait, this isn't true crime. What do I have to know about the Chinese educational society? What do I have to know about this? Yeah, that you're perfectly right on. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a real sure. pleasure. I enjoyed it. It was a nice conversation. Thanks, Mike. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.